0: As we open God's Word now, we'll uh, read from Deuteronomy chapter 5 and then also from Romans chapter 7, Deuteronomy 5 verse 21, page 177 in your pew Bibles, read the conclusion of the Ten Commandments. We heard heard it this morning in the reading of the law from Exodus and now from Deuteronomy 5 verse 21 it says, and you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. We'll read also from Romans chapter 7, where Paul quotes that. Read verses 7 through 12, and focus especially on verse 7, page 1121 in your pew Bibles, beginning... Romans 7 and verse 7, Paul says, What then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet, if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin... and righteous and good. We'll read those two passages in connection with Day 44 as we conclude our study of the Ten Commandments. Wednesday 44, the Heidelberg Catechism on page 893 in the back of your hymnal. We'll read um, questions 113 through 115 together responsively. Question 113 asks, what is God's will for you in the 10th commandment? That not even the slightest desire or thought contrary to any one of God's commandments should ever arise in our hearts. Rather, with all our hearts, we should always hate sin and delight in all righteousness. But can those converted to God keep these commandments perfectly? No. In this life, even the holiest have only a small beginning of this obedience. Nevertheless, with all seriousness of purpose, they do begin to live according to all, not only some of God's commandments. Question 115 Since no one in this life can keep the Ten Commandments perfectly, why does God want them preached so pointedly? First, so that all our life long we may more and more come to know our sinful nature and thus more eagerly seek the forgiveness of sins and righteousness in Christ. Second, so that we may never stop striving and never stop praying to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit, so that we may be renewed more and more after God's image until after this life we reach our goal, perfection. Congregation, each Lord's Day, when we read the law and... Um, confess our sin, we often acknowledge with with the words of an old uh, prayer from the English Reformation that we have sinned in thought, word, and deed, in things done, and in things left undone. Perhaps that makes you feel a little bit uncomfortable, maybe that feels too searching, too um, comprehensive, but the reality is that the law of God speaks not only to our outward actions, but but speaks to the heart from which they flow. The the 10th commandment gets to the heart of the matter as as it points us to our our sinful hearts from which every violation of God's law proceeds. Um, The 10th commandment is a summary command. That's why Paul uses it in Romans chapter seven to illustrate man's inability to keep any of God's law. He says in verse 7, had it not been for the law, I wouldn't have known sin. And then he quotes the 10th commandment. For in Jewish tradition, the 10th commandment was considered a representative summation of the whole law. That's what Paul is picking up on. Or later on, a few centuries later, Augustine would say, when Moses stated all the things from which we must abstain, in commandments 1 through 9, He then subjoined this prohibition as to coveting, which must be referred to all the things previously forbidden. Calvin likewise says of the 10th commandment, there is no question that this commandment extends also to all those that have preceded it. The 10th commandment is a summary command. That's why Moses in it references several of the other commands like the seventh and eighth commandment with reference to your neighbor's wife and and to anything that is your neighbor's. He's not introducing here a new object, but he's, he's getting beneath the surface to show the kind of obedience that every other command demands that not even the slightest desire or thought that is contrary to any one of God's commandments should ever arise in our hearts. Rather, with all our heart, we should always hate sin and delight in all righteousness. And God is showing us with regard to the whole law that mere outward observance is not enough. As Calvin said, everything he's already commanded should be performed with the sincere affection of the heart. That's what's going on in the 10th commandment. It, it summarizes the whole law. So, this afternoon, as we conclude our study of the 10 commandments, I want to um, consider first the, the function of the 10th commandment as it both summarizes and searches, and then let that be a segue to consider second the, the function of the 10 commandments as a whole. First, the, the function of the 10th commandment, which summarizes and searches and then second the the function of the ten commandments as a whole as they reveal our sin as they point to salvation and as they lead us in service first the the function of the tenth commandment the way herman veldkamp puts it he says by the preceding nine commandments god has laid sovereign hold upon our behavior and our actions But now he demands also the deeper-lying stirrings of the heart which underlie those actions. The inclinations, the thoughts, desires. The tenth commandment is not detached from the other nine, but it it comes after them to singularly deepen and strengthen them. It reminds us, just in case we thought that we had kept the, the first commandment, That the idolatry God there forbids concerns not only outward objects, but also idols of the heart, anything in which we place our trust instead of or alongside the only true God. Likewise, with the second commandment, if if we think that we have kept it because we don't worship God by graven images, the, the tenth commandment comes along and reminds us that we can also fashion faulty conceptions of God in our hearts. Or while we may go, um, go along through, through the outward motions of the third commandment and, and avoid certain words and phrases, it reminds us that we do not only use the holy name of God with reverence and awe in our hearts as we ought. But oftentimes we, we mumble through our worship, half engaged, half somewhere else, maybe half awake. Or with the fourth commandment, We may technically conform to the the outward observance of the Lord's day, while all the while trusting in our outward observance and failing to rest in Christ's finished work. We might obey our moms and dads, or as as parents we might fulfill our our obligations to our our children, while doing so with a heart that does not delight in God's good gift of children and God's good gift of, of parents. We can apply that to other spheres in the church or in the state or in our jobs. With the sixth commandment, we may not technically murder, but we hate our neighbor in our hearts. We might not ever follow through with actually committing adultery, but we desire that which God has forbidden. We look upon that which we ought not, or we we do things with our boyfriend or girlfriend that we have no business doing, and then excuse it, saying that we didn't technically break God's commands. But the 10th commandment comes along and says, you have. Or you may not have stolen that which is not yours, but if you're not content with what God has given you, but you fixate on what he's given someone else, wanting that for yourself, or you withhold from him or from others the the good gifts that that, that God calls us to give, then you've broken the 8th commandment. Or as we heard last week with, with the ninth, you might not technically bear false witness. You might be able to hair split to, to, to justify yourself. But, but if the underlying desire behind and beneath the words that you speak is not to protect the good name of your neighbor or to build them up in love, but you speak the truth unseasonably or maliciously to a wrong end, or, or you speak it rashly or harshly, then you have broken the ninth commandment. And so God, in his wisdom, he he gives us this commandment at the end to summarize all that's gone before it and to make us search our hearts to see our guilt. Veldkamp says, in light of the 10th commandment, our guilt increases alarmingly. And we begin to understand more fully that we increase that guilt daily. Those with a, a consciousness of sin that is too shallow, as it is for all of us, should look at themselves in the mirror of the 10th commandment moving from our actions to our our thoughts and from our thoughts to the the deeper lying desires and inclination of our hearts. Saying, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there's any wicked way within me. The 10th commandment is meant to search us has a summarizing and a searching function. It summarizes what's gone before, then searches beneath the outward actions to the thoughts that we think and the things that we desire, asking us, do we hate sin with all our heart and do we delight in all righteousness? Does even the slightest desire or thought that is contrary to any one of God's commandments ever arise in our hearts? The 10th commandment calls us to search our hearts with regard to every one of God's commands and confess, question 114, that we have not kept God's law perfectly, but have made only a small beginning of disobedience. It humbles us. Thus, in, in humbling us, it makes us more eagerly seek the forgiveness of sins and righteousness in Christ. Which then leads us to question 115 and the function of the 10 commandments as a whole which really um, flows right out of this exposition of the 10th commandment. Maybe looking at Lord's Day 44, it it seems like the actual exposition of the 10th commandment is sort of short shrifted. But with Calvin and Augustine and Paul himself in Romans 7 and the Jewish interpreters before him, our our catechism is simply understanding that the summarizing nature of the 10th commandment logically leads to a statement about the purpose of the whole law itself. And that's what we have in question 115. If we cannot keep any of God's law perfectly as the 10th commandment reveals, then why do we read or, or preach any of the 10 at all? In other words, what is the, the purpose or what is the function of the 10 commandments as a whole? And question 115, as it answers that for it it really takes us back to the same thing that we saw at the very beginning of the catechism in Lord's Days 1 and 2. We're in Lord's Day 1 after that beautiful statement about our only comfort. It, it asks us how do we come to know this comfort and it says that there are three things we must know. We must know our sin and, and our misery, how we're delivered from our sins and our misery and how we are to thank God for such deliverance. That's what we see in Lord's Day 1. As you recall in Lord's Day 2, it, it, it tells us that the way that we begin to, to know these things is through the law of God. It is the law of God that helps us to know our misery. That's the same thing question 115 says. Why does God want this law preached so pointedly? The first reason is so that all our life long we might more and more come to know our sinful nature. The purpose of the law is to humble us. John Calvin famously said at the beginning of his Institutes of the Christian Religion that true wisdom consists in two things, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. And as we come to know him, we come to know ourselves. It is evident, he says, that man never attains true self-knowledge until he has first contemplated the face of God and then come down after contemplating God to look at himself. And that's what hearing the law of God and and surveying our hearts in light of it does. The law is the perfect revelation of God's character. And so as we, we hear the law and examine ourselves in light of it, we're doing what Calvin says. We are contemplating the righteousness and the holiness and the perfect character of God. We're raising our thoughts to God and reflecting on on what kind of being he is and how absolute is the perfection of that righteousness and wisdom and virtue to which we, as, as a standard, are bound to be conformed. And beholding in the law the reflection of God's righteous character, we come to know ourselves. That's what Paul said in Romans chapter 7. He said, had it not been for the law, I wouldn't have known sin." But through the commandment, we do. We come to know ourselves. And Calvin says that is the first use of the law. It admonishes everyone of his own unrighteousness, convicts, and condemns us. It is a kind of mirror. We're just like we see spots or wrinkles or blemishes on our face when we look in a mirror. So in beholding God's law, we come to know our sin. That's the first reason why God would have the law to be read and to preach to us so pointedly, so that every Lord's Day, as we come into his presence, as we come into the presence of of the God of heaven who calls us into his presence, where he, he specially manifests his presence among his people in public worship, as he condescends in grace to meet with us, so that hearing that law, we might more and more come to know our misery. So that coming to know that sin and misery, we would then look to Christ by whom we're delivered from it. The law reveals our sin. And in revealing our sin then points us to the one in whom is our salvation. Again, to quote Calvin, while the, the unrighteousness and condemnation of all are attested by the law, He says, it does not follow that we must then give up all hope and rush headlong into despair. But exposed as naked and destitute by the law, we are to take refuge in God's mercy, rely upon it, and cover ourselves up entirely with it. Renouncing all righteousness and merit and clinging to mercy alone as offered in Christ to all who long and look for it in true faith. Though in the law, God is seen as an avenger of wickedness in Christ, his countenance beams forth full of grace and full of gentleness towards poor, unworthy sinners. That's why God wants the law preached so pointedly. As Augustine said, to convert great men into little men, to show that we have no power of our own for righteousness and thus poor, needy, and destitute might flee to God for grace eagerly seeking the forgiveness of sins and righteousness in Christ alone. That's what the law does. It reveals our sin, and it points us to Christ who perfectly kept this law and him alone, not letting even the slightest desire or thought that is contrary to any one of God's commands ever arise in his heart. Can you imagine that? As Jesus exposits for us in, in Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 6, that the heart of these commandments, that it's not enough to simply not kill my neighbor, but, but not to, to, to hate him or be unrighteously angry with him. Can you imagine? Jesus never let even one unrighteous thought of unholy anger um, arise in his heart but he perfectly kept every one of these commands, not just in mere outward observance, but but the heart of it. He kept it perfectly. And not only did did Jesus do that, but then uh, delighting in all righteousness and hating all sin, he bore the curse of God for our failure to do that. He perfectly loved all that is righteous and hated all that is sinful, but we have done the opposite. We have loved sin and we have hated righteousness. But he died on the cross as if he were the one who had loved sin and hated righteousness so that his perfect righteousness might be imputed to us by faith alone. Faith it is the, the, empty hand, the, the the empty hand that admits that we are destitute in and of ourselves. But Jesus' blood and righteousness, our beauty are, our glorious dress. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. As the law humbles us, it leads us to more eagerly seek the forgiveness of sins and righteousness in Christ. And to so treasure those words of pardon that we hear each week. That as we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The law exposes our sin. But then against the dark backdrop of our sin, it highlights the shining grace of God in Christ. Which is meant then to, to motivate us to serve him with new obedience. The law exposes our sin. It shows us our need for Christ, the only one who kept it, and then having led us to Christ, it it becomes also our rule of gratitude, teaching us to walk in thankfulness for the grace that we've been given by him. This is what Calvin and the other reformers called the third use of the law. It's function not just in leading us to Christ, but also in leading us in Christ-likeness. And you see that at the end of question 115, part of the the reason why God wants the law to be preached to us so pointedly is that having confessed our need and misery and having clung to Christ, we may never stop striving and never stop praying to God for the grace of his Holy Spirit so that we might be renewed more and more after God's image. His image, which Colossians 1 tells us is revealed in Christ, who is the image of the invisible God. And so now that the spirit of Christ who joins us to Christ by grace through faith, making us to know our need for him by this law, conforms us to the image of Christ by those same means. So that like him, we might always hate sin and delight in all righteousness. And with all seriousness of purpose, question 114, begin to live according to not only some but all of God's commandments. Meditating on God's law teaches us to do that. That's what we learn in Psalm 1. Calvin said such meditation on the law is the best instrument for enabling us daily to learn with greater truth and certainty what the will of God is which we aspire to follow. Let none of us deem ourselves exempt from this necessity. But the way to walk in new obedience is through prayerful meditation on God's law. The kind of thing that we see in Psalm 1, the kind of thing that we see in Psalm 19, or especially in Psalm 119. As Jonathan Edwards said, we are, we are given in that psalm the language of true religious affection to excite our devotion and move us to new obedience. We meditate on God's law through through psalms like Psalm 1 or Psalm 19 or 119. We meditate on his law by, by reading his word daily and seeking to apply it to our lives by coming to hear the word preached. And in all of this, question 115, praying, that God would so use it by his spirit to conform us to the image of his son. Notice that that interesting emphasis on prayer in response to God's law. We never stop striving and never stop praying to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit. Our catechism is here reminding us that exposure to God's law should lead us to prayer. Prayer. It should make us wrestlers in prayer before God's throne. We see something of that in question 114 as well where it says, with all seriousness of purpose, we begin to live according to to God's law. That that seriousness of purpose can only be serious if it is a prayer-filled resolve. We pray to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit to give us that seriousness of purpose to live according to not only some but all of God's commandments which is why this section of the catechism then leads straight in to that section on prayer. The chief part of our thankfulness, apart from which we deprive ourselves of the grace needed to walk in this obedience. You see the connection between the law of God and prayer to God. The only way to make a small step of obedience in, in keeping this law is in prayer-filled, spirit dependence response to this law on our knees. Amidst all the things that we pray for, we must daily pray to God that he would renew us more and more after his image until after this life we reach our goal of perfection. In this life, even the holiest men make only a small beginning of this obedience. And if we're studying God's law rightly and, and searching our, our hearts, then really the, the more and more that we study God's law, the more and more that we come to know our sin. But our catechism reminds us that there is a glorious finished line that awaits God's children. In the perfection to which the law of God exhorts us, it is, it is pointing to that goal which during the whole course of our life it is our duty to aim but not until we finish this race will the Lord enable us to reach it. Perfection. We do not reach that in this life. Those like Wesley, who, who suggested otherwise, were wrong. We do not reach the goal of perfection in this life, though all our life long we we aspire to attain to it. We will not until after we have finished our race when our Lord Jesus comes again and he transforms us into the, the, the likeness of his glorious image and there is no longer any sin to beset us. And so as reading and hearing the law leads us to prayer, it ultimately should lead us Also to pray, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. As the law reveals to us our sin, it should make us long for the coming of our Savior and say, come quickly, Lord Jesus, and make our hearts... Perfectly conformed to your image, when you come again, and our lowly bodies are transformed into your glorious likeness, and the the sinful thoughts and sinful desires that we continue to wrestle with in this life will be no more. But will be perfectly conformed to your glorious image, no sinful thoughts or desires ever arising in our hearts, but only delighting in all righteousness. That's what awaits us in the age to come. May the Lord help us to know more and more of that blessed reality already in this life and to long for it in the age to come. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your perfect law, which James tells us is a mirror, a mirror that shows us our sinfulness, And thus, when read rightly, it leads us to our knees in humility. But Lord, we thank you that by your grace, because of Christ, even as that law leads us to our knees in humility, from that place you bid us to lift up our heads and rise from our knees that our hearts may be changed and no longer estrange the power of your pardon and peace. We do earnestly pray, Lord, that each and every Lord's Day you would use that part of our liturgy where we read and hear your law to humble us and to show us our sin. But then as we confess our sin and hear those gracious words of part that you would use those words to transform us into be thankful people who never stop striving and never stop praying to you for the grace of your Holy Spirit to renew us after the likeness of the one who did keep this law. More and more until after this life we are perfectly conformed to his glorious image and with all our hearts hate sin and delight in all righteousness. And we long for that day. Pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.